Amen, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I'm sure that you do, would you please take them out and go to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 is where uh, we are today. So Daniel chapter 7, as we're continuing our series on the book of Daniel, God is in control. And today, uh, I want to talk to you, or I've titled my sermon, God is the God of all time. God is the God of all time. Now, some of you, um, you have may heard of the term goat, G-O-A-T, specifically G period, O period, A period, T period. What stands for, anybody know what that stands for? Greatest of all time. Now, typically, uh, when we talk about goat, greatest of all time, um, we typically are referencing um, sporting figures or sports teams. And so, for example, just give you a couple of things. For example, um, my Texas Tech Red Raiders will never be the goat. It's never going to happen. Um, but I've come to grips with that. Let me give you a couple other examples. Uh, some would argue that Tom Brady is the GOAT of NFL quarterbacks. I think that might be true, the greatest of all time. Um, how about the NBA? Some would argue that this guy, anybody know that guy? Michael Jordan. How many of you believe that he's the greatest of all time basketball player? Ooh, not many of you. Okay, well then here's, here, other people would say this guy. LeBron James, how many of you think LeBron James is the greatest of all time? Nobody. Good job. Yes. If you never get anything of my ministry here, get that one, okay? Yes. But actually, actually, here, here is whom I believe is the greatest of all time basketball player right here. That's all I'm saying. I don't know why you're laughing. I really don't. That was taken during our vacation Bible school a couple of years ago. But, but when we're talking about the greatest of all time, we in this room, we understand and know that, that God is undeniably the God of all time. We understand that. This morning, what I want to talk about with, with all the craziness going on in our great country that was founded upon Christian values that, that included, not limited to, but included integrity and personal responsibility, I want to speak on the biblical foundational concept that God is the God of all Time. Time. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The book that is foundational to our society, this book that is, foundation to, that is foundational to our country, this book that is foundational to our educational system begins with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So the foundational truth is God created time. 
God created it. Some of you may ask, well, how did God create? Well, the Bible tells us that God spoke things into existence. You may argue, you say, well, I believe that that the Big Bang is what brought everything into existence. And I would say, okay, God spoke and bang. You may say, well, you know, Pastor, I believe and I've been taught that there is just this, this primordial soup and all of these elements were all just gathering together and, and out of this somehow, some way, they, they came all into one and it grew and grew and, and it began to create what is now our existence. Fine. Where did the primordial soup come from? The more you look into it, you will never find an element that has always existed. In order for time to come into existence, somebody, something, someone outside of time must create it. And since God, since God the Creator spoke time into existence, it has a beginning point. And it makes sense that if time has a beginning point, guess what else time must include? An ending point. If there's a beginning, there must be an end. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8, he said this. He said the end is actually better than than the beginning. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 39, when he is talking to the the disciples and he's sharing this parable about the wheats and the tares, Jesus said, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, talking about the tares, and the harvest is the end of the age. Another term for age is times. So there's a beginning and there is an end Psalm 90, verse 10, the psalmist writes these words. As for the days of our life, now for all of you soap opera lovers, I wonder where they got the title from. As for the days of our life, uh, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. But... Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. And look at that last part. For soon it is gone and we fly away. So clearly, God has created a beginning. He has spoken things into existence, a beginning. And clearly we see that there is an end. So God created time and he determined the end time. Therefore, this God is outside of time and God is the God of all time. And in Daniel chapter 7, we get to see his view of time. We get to see what God looks down upon as he looks upon the nations in the midst of their chaos, and we get to see God's perspective of the nations. Do you think this is appropriate for today? Look at your neighbor and say, you bet it is. Well, this is really exciting. I'm excited about Daniel chapter 7, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I need about two hours in chapter 7. 
How about 30 minutes? How about that? Okay. Well, the book of Daniel is neatly divided into two parts, and we've talked about this before. The first six chapters, chapters one through six, they're biography. They tell us um, what happened to Daniel as he was deported from Jerusalem to Babylon, along with other uh, men and women from uh, Jerusalem. And uh, Daniel 1 through 6, again and again, we see Daniel standing firm under pressure. We see him facing danger after danger, and, and death is near him. But in the end, he stands firm. And in Daniel 1, 8, he says, I made up my mind not to defile myself by eating the king's food. And what we see time and time and time again is because Daniel remained faithful to God in the midst of a pagan society, God continued to elevate him in the government. So we automatically, in the United States of America, automatically need to say, it is possible, it is possible to live a godly life in an ungodly culture and in an ungodly government. That's one of the very first things that we need to understand. Why do we know that? We see this in the example of Daniel, Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Well, when we come to chapter 7, the book changes. It pivots. This is one of the great pivots in all of Scripture. So we go from Daniel 1 through 6, from biography to chapter 7 through 12, which is prophecy. You and I can say eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times. And this is what Daniel 7 through 12 is. This is called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, which means chapter 7 through 12, this is writings about the apocalypse. Now, what is this word apocalypse? Well, uh, apocalypse is actually the Greek title of the book of Revelation. That's what Revelation is. It's called the book of apocalypse. And so, the definition of apocalypse is this, to pull back the covers in order to reveal and specifically here in chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, what Daniel is going to do through visions and through dreams that God has given and that God is going to interpret through Daniel so that you and I can understand, he is going to pull back the covers. He is going to reveal what is going to happen in the end times. And the reason this can happen is because God knows the beginning and God knows the end. And so these last six chapters, there are four visions that God gives Daniel. And this happens in the last 20 years of his life. And these visions, they are going to center around the nations and the empires of the world and of their times. Um, chapters 8 through 12 is going to deal a lot with Israel and a character that we know about whose name is the Antichrist. We are going to be introduced, uh, not, maybe not today, but next week and on, we will be introduced to the Antichrist for the very first time. We will pick up the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, but 8 through 12 is about Israel. Chapter 7 is about the Gentile nations. And in chapter 7, we have the first of these great visions. John Walvert, who is uh, the foremost scholar on the book of Daniel, he is out of, he was out of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he calls this vision in chapter 7 the most comprehensive Old Testament prophecy in the Old Testament uh, of the future. 
And here's what's crazy. This is what I find fascinating about chapter 7. Many of our Jewish believers and many of our Jewish scribes consider this. Are you ready? This is the greatest chapter in the Old Testament. Look at your neighbor and say, wow, because I sense your energy this morning. Praise God. Well, what is the purpose of Daniel chapter 7? I want to share this with you because we need to understand what the overarching purpose is as we begin to dive into the weeds. You know, when you dive into the weeds, we can lose sight of the big picture. Let's remember what the big picture is in Daniel chapter 7. The purpose is this. This is what Daniel's doing. He's writing to the exiles in Babylon. They have been separated from their home uh, for many, many years, many decades. Sons and daughters have been uh, born and raised in Babylon. As a matter of fact, uh, the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah said, you need to grow up, build families in Babylon. You need to do this. Make sure that Babylon succeeds. And so now Daniel is writing to this Jewish remnant, this remnant who is away from home in exile, and he's writing, and this is on the screen, he's writing to reassure God's people people who are in exile, that he is in control of the times. Now, now specifically, he's writing to reassure them uh, that the one true living God is in absolute control of the times, and he will, in his appointed time, listen, give his, his, his uh, everlasting kingdom to his people, the saints of God, when Jesus Christ returns. We see all this take place in Daniel chapter 7. In other words, in time, God is going to send Jesus back, Jesus back, the return, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus returns, we see this in Daniel 7, he is going to defeat the nations, he's going to defeat the Antichrist, and he is going to reign as king, and we as the people of God are going to reign in that kingdom with him as well. Amen? It is going to be a glorious, glorious day. So, as we walk through this today and next week, let's gain an understanding of the times so that we can make the most of our time today. Amen? Amen? All right, here you go. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. Here we go. In the first year of Belshazzar. Now, do not confuse this name with Daniel's Babylonian name. Daniel's Babylonian name is Belshazzar, which means you, Daniel, protect the king. But here, Belshazzar means a bell protect the king. So, in the years, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, and then he wrote the dream down. And here is the summary of that dream. So, if you're taking notes, I want you to write some things down. And uh, verse 1, it gives us the timing and the setting of this dream. The one thing you need to understand very quick, and you might want to write this out beside um, uh, uh, chapter 7, write the date that this is taking place. This gives you a clue to what is going on. The timing of this dream is the year 553 B.C. You need to understand that. The reason you need to understand that, because this, it says in chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar. Well, if you know from reading Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, guess who died? Say Belshazzar just to humor me, please. Belshazzar died. Well, wait a minute, we're two chapters later, and now we're talking about Belshazzar. What, what, what's going on? We need to understand, okay? When you're reading this and understanding, you need to know the timing of what's going on. Daniel 1 through 6 is in chronological order. 
Daniel 7 through 12, the revelations, the dreams, and the visions, they all take place during chapters 1 through 6. So Daniel 7, you need to understand this, Daniel chapter 7, it takes place between Daniel chapter 4, that's King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, or when he, when he turns into a cow, do you remember that? And Daniel chapter 5, which is the end of the Babylonian Empire when Belshazzar dies. And so at this point, at this time, Daniel is a middle-aged to older man at the point of this dream. So that's the timing. You need to understand this, okay? Now the setting is this. Now this is, this is what I'm going to call the prophetic setting, the prophetic setting for, for Daniel, as he writes here in Daniel chapter 7, is the same prophetic setting that you and I are living in today. And this is why we need to understand the times. I want you to write this phrase down. Write this phrase down. It's on the screen. The times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles. You and I are living in the time of the Gentiles along with Daniel when he has this dream. Now, this phrase, the times of the Gentiles, um, this may be new to some of you. Some of you may not have heard of this uh, term. Some of you may have, but, but this is vastly important that we understand God's view of time and where we are in time. Because we've all asked a question during COVID for sure, and especially now uh, the presidential election, the way it has turned out, many of us and many people are beginning to ask, are we at the end of our time? Well, we're going to answer that question this morning. Aren't you glad about that? All right. So the time of the Gentiles, what is the time of the Gentiles? I want you to write this down to help you understand. The time of the Gentiles it is a biblically defined era that has a beginning, and guess what? It has an end. The beginning of the time of the Gentiles is found in Daniel chapter 1, which is the fall of Jerusalem. It's the fall of Jerusalem when Israel has been uh, defeated by Babylon. And so that is the beginning of the time of the Gentiles, and the end of the time of the Gentiles is when Christ Jesus returns. Look with me, turn with me, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Y'all with me this morning? Luke 21, verse 24, and it's on the screen behind me as well, but um, follow along. This is... Jesus is talking to his disciples. The disciples have asked Jesus this question. They said, Jesus, when is the end going to come? When is time going to end and you come back and you set up your kingdom? Now watch what Jesus says, verse number 24, and he says this, and they will be led captive into all the nations. He's talking about uh, the Jewish people. They'll be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Babylonians. You see it? They'll be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus here confirms that there is a beginning and an ending for the time of the Gentiles. Well, where does Jesus get this term, times of the Gentiles, from? Where does he get it? Look at your neighbor and say, I bet it's from Daniel. And you're right. It comes from Daniel. 
It comes from Daniel chapter 2, and it comes from Daniel chapter 7. So if you were to do a real quick run-through of Daniel 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you will see when the time of the Gentiles began. Daniel 1 tells us that, that Nebuchadnezzar came in to destroy Jerusalem. This happens around 600 B.C. And around that time, um, the, the Babylonians uh, capture Jerusalem, they capture Israel, and many people are sent into exile. Now, what I'm about to say, I want you to listen to very, very closely. Why were the Israelites, why was the Jewish nation, why were they sent into exile? They were sent into exile. Listen, they were sent into exile because they reversed their values upon which their nation was founded. Did you catch that? The reason Israel, the Jewish people, God's chosen people, whom God had said, you follow me, you do not worship other gods, I am the one true living God, you give me everything, you do not, you do not enter, uh, marry with other people outside of the Jewish nation, you don't do this, you follow me, you serve me and nobody else. Well, they disobeyed. And God told them, he said, if you continue to disobey me, I will end your kingdom. I will take your kingdom away because you are not obeying me. And so around the year 600, 605 to 586 is when all of this battle, all the battles for Jerusalem and Israel are taking place. Ultimately, they are sent into exile, listen, because they reversed their values and they turned their back on the living God as described in the Old Testament. They turned their back. And if it can happen to the nation of Israel, it can happen to the United States of America. The great prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, you might want to write this down because this is sobering. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Isaiah writes these words to the nation Israel before the destruction. God says through Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Other translations actually say this, you are doomed. You are headed for trouble. That's what other translations say. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. What else are they doing? who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What is God saying through Isaiah? What he's saying is this. He says, Israel, nations, you are going to collapse as a nation and as a kingdom if you reverse the godly values which you were founded upon. He says, your culture is not going to last. Folks, this happened over 2,500, 2,600 years ago to the nation of Israel. And during that moment, right before Babylon comes and takes them away, the nation of Israel had fallen into immorality, injustice, and idolatry. Does that sound familiar today? They began to idolize things that weren't God. They, they began to treat people unjustly. They began to treat people unfairly. They lived an immoral life, and they lived without integrity. And since God is the God of all time, God kept his word. And God said, I told you. 
I told you that if you do not keep me as number one in your country, I will have to step in and do something. And God sent this man named Nebuchadnezzar, and he came in and he took over the entire nation of Israel, destroyed Jerusalem, and took about 25% of them captive into Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And the nation of Israel was history. They were no longer a kingdom. And from that moment until 1947, Israel was ruled by Gentile kings. Well, turn over with me to Daniel chapter 2. Look at Daniel chapter 2, because Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are closely related to one another. They are closely related to one another. They are, uh, Daniel uh, 7 expounds on Daniel chapter 2, and, 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 it, and it gives us the time of the Gentiles. Look at Daniel chapter 2, and I put a, a, an image up on the screen. I put a statue on, on the screen. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he says, Daniel, come and tell me the dream and interpret the dream for me. So Daniel does this. And uh, in the dream, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we see man's viewpoint of humanity and of their kingdoms. We think that our kingdoms are great or wonderful and are precious. Well, in this statue, this is what we see, or Nebuchadnezzar sees. He sees this huge, large, um, uh, splendorous extraordinary statue at the head. The head was made out of gold. We are going to see later on that that is Babylon. The arms and the chest are of silver. We're going to later see that this is the Medo-Persian Empire. We're going to see the belly and the thighs. We see that uh, that is going to be the kingdom of, of Greece. Then we see another kingdom, which is uh, the, the legs of iron, which, which historically we know this is Rome. And then at the, at the bottom of this statue, um, we see this feet of iron and clay. Um, and so what we are going to learn in chapter 7 and on through chapter 12 um, is that this is going to be, in my opinion, this is going to be the revised Roman Empire, some form of the Roman revised Roman Empire. But if you remember in this dream, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sees this great statue, but then after describing the statue, what does he see next? He sees specifically a stone uh, that, that is not cut with hands. Do you remember that? This great stone appears, and you and I know that this great stone is Jesus, and it says of that stone, that that stone, where does the stone hit the statue? In its what? Awesome. You remember this image. This is fantastic, right? Say feet. The stone hits the feet, and it crushes into the feet. The stone, Jesus, the cornerstone, doesn't hit the head, doesn't hit the arms, the chest, doesn't hit the belly, the thighs, doesn't hit the legs, but rather it hits the feet. Now, according to scholars and, and, and prophecy and eschatology, and, and I'm in agreement with this, the stone in Daniel chapter 2, Jesus, it hits the revised Roman kingdom. A question for you. Has that revised Roman kingdom occurred yet? Let me answer that question for you. No, it has not occurred in my opinion. Look at verse 44, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel 2, verse 44. In Daniel 2, verse 44, it says this. This is the interpretation. 
Um, It says this, in the days of those kings, it's referencing the ten toes in the statue, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will then set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another, another of people. So, you may be asking yourself this question right now. Pastor, you are confusing me. I don't know why we are spending so much time on the setting here found in verse number one of chapter seven. I'm spending so much time on the setting because of this. This is the time that we are living in right now. This is the time. This is the era that we are living in. I want you to write down this this phrase because I think this is important. This is what I want you to understand today and while we're talking about all of this history and this prophetic setting. Those who know prophecy can live today in the calm of eternity. Those who know prophecy can live today in the calm of eternity eternity. Folks, there's a reason why believers do not protest. Are you with me? I'm not talking about standing up for what's right. I'm not talking about that. I'm I'm talking about those who, in a chaotic fashion, attack the fabric of our nation. Everybody with me? There's a reason that you and I as believers, that we can stay calm. It's because we know our prophecy. It's because we know the beginning, and guess what? And we know what? The end. So when you and I understand the prophetic setting, here's what we know. We can grow closer to God because we know that He is in control, because He is the God of all time. And when we know our prophecy, we understand the workings of the world, that nothing would catch us by surprise. None of the, all of this going on in our world today, we should not be surprised by what's going on. Why? It's been revealed. It's already been revealed in Scripture. None of this is, should catch us by surprise. And so when we know our prophecy, when we know our prophetic setting, and where we sit in this prophecy of Daniel 2 and of Daniel 7, here's what happens. We can find great hope. We can find great hope because we know the prophetic setting is this. The world will continue to get worse, but one day Jesus is going to return. He is not going to allow our world to continue to go down this path. He is going to come back, and he's going to take his people with him, and he will set up his earthly, eternal, divine kingdom. And that brings us hope. And I believe this, if there's ever been a time for this to be preached, it's today. I've had many people who have told me that they believed that they had a word from the Lord that Donald Trump was going to be president. And I've had several people who have come to me very confused over what's happened are you with me? I mean, I, I, multiple, and I'm not just talking about here, I'm just talking all over, friends in different states, cities, and whatever. Oh, Chris, I had a word from the Lord that he was going to be, I had a vision from the Lord from that this was going to happen, I had all this, and, 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 and I, I could tell you this week, there are many believers who are confused.
Because they believed with all of their heart that this was going to happen. And, and, and for whatever reason, for whatever reason, it, it hasn't gone as what we perceived or what many people perceived or, or what you perceived or what, what somebody else perceived. But, but, but what, what I know now is this. I don't understand where, where that vision or that word came from, specifically if you thought he, he was going to be it. I, I don't know. I don't understand all of those things. But here's what I know now, that the Bible has clearly given us direction on what we do now. And the Bible's clear. We pray for our president. And it doesn't give a name. It gives a title. That's what we do. Well, pastor, I don't like that. I, well, take it up with the Lord when you get to heaven, okay? Because <laughs> I have a strange and strong feeling he's going to tell you the same thing. But the reason that we can pray for our president, the vice president-elect, is because we know the future. And we know that no matter what comes our way, we will never, ever, ever, ever be destroyed. We will not be destroyed. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. It's not going to happen. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Daniel 2, verse 21 says this. This is Daniel. Uh, you know, God, is, God gave Daniel the dream and the interpretation of the dream, of the vision. And in verse 21, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, listen to what, listen to what Daniel said. This all came from God. It says this. It is he, God who changes the times and the epics. Now listen, listen, church, listen. And it is God who removes kings and establishes kings. Question, who's in control of the United States of America right now? It's God. It's not those ballots that are in some... United States postal truck somewhere on the borders that hasn't been counted, right? Are, are you with me? Scripture says who's in control. God establishes the kings. God removes the kings. So, let me come back here. So where are we in prophecy? Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 tells us exactly where we are. We are in the time of the Gentiles, we are, awaiting, we are awaiting the revised Roman Empire to come back into rule, whatever that looks like, with ten kings and kingdoms. And then immediately following after that, the stone cut without hands will crush the statue. So question, are we near the end times? Look at your neighbor and boldly say, yes, we are. Now let me tell you why. Because all of these, and, and when you look at Daniel 7... What we see is these kingdoms that was found in Daniel chapter 2, the statue, we see in Daniel chapter 7 that those have already been fulfilled. And we know from Scripture that what God says, he's going to keep his word. Amen? Well, let's look at this. Are y'all doing okay? All right. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I doubt that anybody will surrender to the mission field after this message. You know what I'm talking about? I don't think so. Okay. But I believe with all of my heart that this is foundational to what we believe and what we hold true. 
okay? So write this down. We, we, we've now confirmed that we are living in the times of the Gentiles. Now in verses 2 through 8 and 9, um, we are going to see Daniel and his vision explain to us the times of the kingdoms, okay? So we're living in the times of the Gentiles. Now he's going to explain what these kingdoms look like and what they are. And so let's look at this and, and, and look at verse number two. And I want you to write this down. It's not on the screen, but write this down about the kingdoms in the times of the Gentiles. Write this down. The kingdoms are Gentile nations that come out of chaos. What we're going to see, verses two through nine, we're going to see kingdoms rise up and it comes out of chaos. Look at verse number two. And Daniel said, I was looking. Now, the Aramaic means that he was gazing intently. Why is Daniel gazing intently? He's gazing intently because he was given a word from the Lord, and he's trying to understand the message. There's a great lesson right there. God has already revealed his word. God's already given us a message, therefore we need to look intently at what his message says. And Daniel is doing that. He says, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, now here's the vision. Behold, there were four winds of heaven who were stirring up the great sea. Now let me share a couple things here with you before we get into the beasts and the kingdom. Most scholars agree that the four winds of heaven represent the sovereign hand of God. The four winds of heaven, whether you want to say it's, it's the winds north, uh, south, east, and west, which typically in Scripture represents the movement of, of God. In Aramaic, the four winds of heaven uh, can be translated as angels' wings. Either way, it comes back to the fact that, that there is a supernatural hand of God moving among the nations. This is a picture of the sovereign God. This is picture, remember, going to the time, there's a beginning of time and there's an end of time. Somebody who created time has to be outside of time. Are you with me? This is the sovereign God. He is outside of time. He's looking down on time. And it says the supernatural hand of God, the four winds of heaven, are stirring up the great sea. This word stirring, it literally means chaos out of control. And it's a picture of, of the angel's wings or the sovereign hand of God just slapping the waters of the sea. And it's constant. It is constantly being churned over and over and over. It is great chaos. Would you be in agreement that the times of the Gentiles can be identified with one word? Chaotic. This is it. It's biblical. It's prophetic. The great sea, the Bible identifies the great sea as two things in Scripture. It either identifies it as the Mediterranean Sea, which is the great sea next to the land of Israel. That's one possible uh, interpretation of that. I don't necessarily believe that's the interpretation for this moment of the great sea, because the great sea can also be interpreted as the Gentile nations. Now, how do we know that? Write these two verses down. Revelation 13.10. Revelation 13.10 says... That the beast, which we will talk about the beast next Sunday, the beast, which is part of uh, this fourth uh, kingdom, this revised Roman Empire, arises out of the sea. Now, we know the beast, Antichrist, is not Jewish. He's a Gentile. So one of the kings is coming out. He is going to be a Gentile. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, uh, the sea represents the Gentile nations. And so what we see here in verse number two is that the sovereign hand of God is stirring up 
of this great commotion within the Gentile nations. And so it is the sea of the Gentile world. Out of humanity, this, this fallen humanity, kingdoms are rising up. And I think a good takeaway from verse number two is this. The world may look like it's falling apart, but in actuality, it's all coming together. Uh, let me say that again because we, some of you need to hear this. The world may look like it's falling apart from our point of view, but from God's view of time, everything is coming together. Everything is coming together. It's all part of God's plan, and all of what's happening today is going to eventually end up in the coronation of Christ Jesus as king. But there's some things we've got to go through. Look at verse number three. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So out of this chaos... Out of the Gentile nations, out of fallen humanity, these beasts rise up. Now write this phrase down. The four beasts are four great kings. They're four great kingdoms. See, Daniel 7 is interpreting Daniel chapter 2. The Bible interpreting the Bible. That's great Bible study right there. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Well, how do we know that the four beasts are the great or are, are Gentile kings? Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse number 17. Look at this. Again, the Bible interprets the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. These great beasts that we're about to describe are four number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. You're going, Pastor, I just thought you were a genius. No. No, I just read Scripture. Scripture tells you what to believe. So, picture this, okay? Get this vision. Daniel sees this vision. He has this dream. He sees chaos. He sees kings and kingdoms rise for control. And all of these kingdoms that we're going to see here in just a few moments, all of them are fighting for control, and every single one of them have rejected God. All of them have rejected God. This is God's view of time. Now, who are these kingdoms? Look at verses 4 through 8. We're not going to make it very far through this chapter this morning, okay? Look at verse number four. The first beast was like a lion, and he had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. Overwhelmingly, scholars all agree that this first beast, this first kingdom, is Babylon. All throughout Scripture, Babylon is identified with both the lion and the eagle. The lion, the, great, uh, the, 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 the greatest of the land, the eagle, the greatest of the air. And recently, archaeologists have found uh, images of a, of a lion with eagle's wings on the walls of Babylon. So this is all confirmed within archaeology. It's confirmed within Scripture. And when you look at verse uh, number 4, you'll see that the description of this lion with its wings plucked, being lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, um, and a human mind was also given to it, this brings to our mind the, uh, how God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, which took place in Daniel chapter 4. And so this is the great kingdom of Babylon. This is the first beast. But we know in Daniel chapter 5 that the Medes and the Persians come next. Verse number 5, And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. The second beast is the Medo-Persian kingdom. Overwhelmingly, scholars all agree with this. 
And this kingdom is depicted as a bear. A bear is powerful, it's ferocious, but it's not as quick or as swift as, as a lion. But one thing we do know about the Medo-Persian Empire, that it was much, much larger than the Babylonian Empire. It's much larger than the Babylonian Empire. And we know this because two things it says in verse number five about this bear that I want you to understand uh, and see what it's talking about. It says that the bear has three ribs in its mouth. Now, I like to eat ribs. How about y'all? What? what is? Yeah, thank you. That's the best amen I've had all morning. That's really good. What's up with these three ribs? What is he talking about? What it's referencing is this, that this Persian empire, the Medo-Persian empire, is a, is a devastating empire. And scholars will, will say that these three ribs represent the nation that the Medo-Persian kingdom destroyed. And you look at history, Egypt, Babylon, and Lydia. Historically, the Medes and the Persians wiped those three countries out. And so Daniel sees a vision. God gives Daniel a vision, and he sees these three ribs. This kingdom is a ferocious kingdom. Now, what you also notice about this bear is he's raised up onto one side. Do you see that? It's raised up onto one side, and it was raised on one side. Scholars will say that this lopsided bear suggests that, that, that one side of the bear is stronger than the other. What do you know about the Medes and the Persians? There's two. The Medes and the Persians. Historically, we know this, that the Persian Empire was the strongest of the two. If you want some biblical uh, background for that, read the book of Esther. And you read about the Persian Empire. And so you see from Babylon, the first beast. You see from uh, the, the Medes and the Persians are, are, are the second beast. Historically, they have already come into existence. And this is overwhelmingly agreed by all scholars who it is. Now, here's a number three, the third beast. And, and I'm just going to tell you, this is as far as we're going to go this morning. And everybody says, oh, I want to eat ribs. Verse 6, after this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This third beast is known as Greece. This is Greece. Now, here's a little history question for you. Who is the greatest leader of Greece? Please say Alexander the Great. That's right. History. History in the Bible, wow, coming together. Alexander the Great was the great leader of the Grecian Empire. We were told in history that Alexander would, would overnight make moves. He would, he would march men in day in and day out, and he would, he would make a swift surprise attack on his enemies just like a leopard. And here's what we know historically about Alexander the Great. He conquered more land, more empires than any other general in all of the history of man. And it came to a point, as he had conquered all the way to India, it came to a point that he had conquered what was in his mind, all the kingdoms to conquer. And he had, he had accomplished this by the age of 32. Fast, swift, like a leopard. And then one night after a drunken fest, he got a fever. Because of the fever, he died at the age of 32. Fast, he spread all across the Middle East and into the Far East. But 
notice something in verse 6 that you, we need to see about this beast. It was a leopard, it was fast, had four wings, not like an eagle, but he had wings that could move quickly. But the beast also had what? Four heads. Well, do you know what happened after Alexander the Great died? He did not have somebody, he didn't have a son who could take his throne. Instead, what they did is they divided the country or the empire, the kingdom, into four parts, four heads. Lysicamus took over Greece. Cassander took over Macedonia. We, you don't need to remember those two names, but the next two names you need to remember because it affects biblical history. Seleucus took over Babylon and Syria, or Babylonia and Syria, and Ptolemy took over Egypt. Now, historically, you know one of the last rulers of the Ptolemy reign. Her name, Cleopatra. And the Seleucids and the Ptolemies of these two heads spent the next several years after the death of Alexander the Great, after they had more kings began to take over and those reigned over um, their area, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies spent years fighting over a little parcel of land next to the great sea, the land called Israel. And because of all of their fighting, it gave way to that next beast, the Roman Empire. And we will learn about them next week. Amen? Well... Turn over real quick to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me share this, and I have one other picture I want to show you. You may say, Pastor, why are we talking about prophecy? Why are we doing this? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. This isn't on the screen, but look at this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 says this. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Why are we studying prophecy? Because it reminds us of who's in control of all time. In 1601, an Italian named Caravaggio he painted a picture titled the, Summer, excuse me, the Supper at Emmaus. This is the Supper at Emmaus, and this picture depicts Jesus having supper with the two disciples who he met on the road to Emmaus. You may remember the story. After Jesus had been crucified, buried on the third day, he, rised, he rose again. And then uh, Jesus begins to meet these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. These men were depressed. They were confused as to what just happened in their country. They didn't know what was going on. And then Jesus appears to them, and they don't know who he is. And Jesus begins to share with them who he was. And he used prophecy from the Old Testament. And he began to paint a picture of the big view, a big picture he painted this big picture that, we needed to, that they needed to have a big view of what was going on to draw them out of the state of their depression. And the more and more he talked about Old Testament, Moses, the law, 
the prophets, their eyes were opened and they saw Jesus. We are studying this prophetic word so that we can maintain a big view of the world. Because you and I both know this, that the immediate concerns can always, and most often they will take us away from the big view. Amen? So many times the immediate displaces the big view. An election can take us away from the big view. A broken relationship can take us away from the big view. A job ending uh, or, or career ending whatever can cause us to lose sight. But take heart today that we will maintain a big view because we know that God is the God of all time. And soon, very, very soon, Jesus is going to be crowned king, and that can never be taken away. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this great word from Daniel. I thank you for this great prophecy as we continue to look at it next week. God, may our hearts burn, just like the, the men on the road to Emmaus. May our hearts burn for more, oh God. May our hearts burn more for you. May our eyes and our focus stay on, on you, who is the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. You are the, the alpha and the omega. You are the beginning and the end. And you know it all, and you created it all, and you are in control. And Father, may we remain calm in the midst of the storm. And may we trust you, the sovereign hand of God. And we look forward to the day when you will come and you will be crowned the victorious king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.